Varmt välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från samtalsserien På djupet på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med allkonstnären Patti Smith i samtal med Daniel Birnbaum. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast. Jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i detta stora allkonsthus vid Särgelstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Hello everybody. Hello. Or, hey hey. <laughs> Congratulations on a great show. Thank you. Opened yesterday, very packed, very young audience actually. Yes. And I thought I would ask you a few questions about art. And um, many people I think in this um, room here um, lots of people have read your books, Just Kids, came out in Swedish a few years ago. And um, at the very beginning of the book, there are a few um, ideas about art, but more specifically experiences, how art more or less saved you, I would say. I mean, it seems, things seemed difficult at the moment when you were, were very young. You gave birth as a teenager. You, Um, didn't want to go back and work in a factory. You didn't go back to school. Your parents weren't so maybe excited and happy about the situation. And still there was a moment when you suddenly felt uh, that things were going to be okay. And I just thought it's one of the more beautiful passages in your whole book, and I'll, I'll read it. Uh, it is impossible to exaggerate the sudden calm I felt. An overwhelming sense of mission eclipsed my fears. I attributed this to the baby, imagining it emphasized, um, em- empathized with my situation. I felt in full possession of myself. I would do my duty and stay strong and healthy. I would never look back. I would not return to the factory or to teacher's college. I would be an artist. And that was somehow a moment when things didn't look impossible anymore. And now, half a century later, You definitely are an artist, and you are an artist in many ways. You make music, you write poetry, you perform, you, you've been producing exhibitions. But when you felt that, what did you think it was going to be? What was it to be an artist? Well, first of all, I never thought things were impossible. Uh, ever. Uh, I just, um, things being difficult doesn't necessarily mean that things are impossible. But I also was aware that uh, if I wanted to be, just wanting to be an artist was not enough. First of all, um, you had to be extremely blessed, and you had to be willing to sacrifice, and you had to be willing to um, open yourself to all of the highest possibilities of communication whether one called it with, with God, with nature, with the intellect, with the mind, uh, and merge it with the creative impulse to produce work of worth. I knew that it was a big undertaking, and I was hoping that I was uh, um, qualified, but I, I wasn't afraid. So it, it's not a fact of that 
I thought things were impossible or possible. I just felt I was ready to do what I had to do, to sacrifice, to be poor, to be obscure. I was ready as long as I could prove to myself and then the world that I was worthy of such an undertaking. Art can be so many different things. And sometimes I feel a little bit uh, depressed by the fact that art worlds of different kinds exist next to each other, but they hardly communicate. And there's professionalization and specialization, and people go to specific schools and they stick to what they do. But you are a very, very convincing example of another possibility, that you wrote poetry and you created a new kind of poetry maybe that would move into rock music. And at the same time, you didn't give up the fact that you were making drawings, and now you make photography, or rather you did that a long time. Has it been natural to you all along that you wouldn't choose one discipline, so to say? Well, it's, <laughs> it's been a trial, actually. I've been lucky in one way because I can express myself both publicly and also in a solitary way, publicly, in um, communicating with people, singing in concerts and poetry readings, and very uh, private, uh, in solitude, writing, taking photographs. But when I was very young, I just wanted to be a writer. That was what I wanted to do. But then when I was about 12, I saw art for the first time in a museum, and I saw Picasso's, and I thought, that's what I want to do. So um, <laughs> be just like Picasso. <laughs> but um, I, was, I gravitated to the arts. I gravitated by finding old fashion magazines, Vogue's and Bazaars in the late 50s with photographs by Irving Penn and gravitated toward his vision of photography. So I've, I've aesthetically always drawn to the arts. The show that opens today, or had its <coughs> opening evening yesterday, is a show of mostly relatively recent photographs. Straightforward, simple in a way, modest in many ways, considering what art uh, photography can look like today. What is it that attracts you with this kind of photography? Well, um, I've always loved photography. I never aspired to be a photographer, but I studied the history of photography. I loved the 19th century photographers. Um, I, I really, uh, and I've had friends like Robert Frank and of course Robert Maplethorpe who are photographers. And, but I've always loved um, the amateur photographs of the 19th century when people felt compelled to take a picture. They didn't have a lot of technical uh, expertise, but something drew them to a certain image and the atmosphere of an image. And I, I, I love these photographs because they're both, um, they have a certain amount of innocence, but yet they're sophisticated. With me, I started taking photographs um, the photographs that are in the uh, exhibition seriously after my husband died. Um, it was in 1994, 
and uh, then my brother died a month later, and I my uh, grief was so profound and paralyzing, and I also had two small children that I couldn't write, I couldn't draw, um, I wasn't performing, I didn't have any outlet. And uh, one day I picked up my husband's Polaroid camera and I took a picture of a still life with um, mosquito netting and a pair of Noriev's ballet slippers that I own. And uh, it, the light was beautiful and it was just a simple Polaroid picture, which means you can peel it off and see it immediately. And so I had, immediately I could, I could see that I did a piece of work that I liked, because I liked the photograph. And it was really a sort of a salvation for me to be able just to take one, two pictures a day, which is all I had the energy for, that gave me a continuing affirmation of my creative process. And so I continued on. But my camera's quite simple. Uh, it's just an old um, um, Polaroid 250. Uh, it's not really possible to do really complex pictures. It just has near far dark light. So <laughs> it's a child could use it. So um, you really, in getting anything unusual, really depends on unusual light and knowing when the light is right for this particular camera, whether indoors or outdoors. And when the atmosphere is right and your subject is of interest, it comes together in a nice little picture. Mm -hmm. Is that humbleness or reduced kind of method or technique, is it a reaction in some way to the fact that you've been close to others I think primarily of Robert Maplethorpe, who actually made unbelievably sophisticated photos with a Hasselblad camera, and it, it was so technically kind of high-end, the whole thing? No, it's not a reaction. I'm just bad technically. <laughs> okay. You know, I'm really bad technically, and uh, um, I'm not really interested in trying to develop my no. technical skills. I get what I want. I'm not trying to... Uh, I don't think of competing or trying to achieve what others achieve. I, I like my little pictures. They're exactly what I want to take. And, um, and they uh, fulfill my, my vision of, of, of what I want to do. These are um, full and rich days for you here in Sweden. I know a few days ago you had a conversation with the, with the Swedish bishop. Yes. And I'm afraid I will not be able to compete with that level of spirituality. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm interested in certain ideas of uh, spirituality and even religion that emerges in your writing and, and is visible somehow in many things that you've done. Um, I know you grew up in a family, that a, a religious family, or your well, mother Je had... Well, uh, they were Jehovah Witness. My mother was a Jehovah Witness, not my father. He... He didn't have a religion, but he read the scriptures, he read the Bible all the time. On the very first page of Just Kids, there's a little passage, and at the end sentence says, for art sings of God and ultimately belongs to him. First page of Just Kids in my edition. Um, when I read that, of course, I 
have to think about earlier statements and very famous lines in your music, and, uh, and I'm thinking of one of your first poems, or at least one of your best-known poems, Oath, that somehow trans was transformed into a new song, which is the song Gloria, um, where, where it says at the very beginning, Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Yes, but see, I was talking about sin, not art. <laughs> I mean, the, th the thing is, that uh, statement was really um, a reaction against organized religion and how Jesus was uh, um, taught to me. And um, I didn't want to think of Jesus simply as uh, a person who sacrificed himself uh, for my mistakes, nor did I want Jesus to have to take responsibility for my mistakes. I, as a young girl, I wrote that when I was 20. I wanted to take my own responsibility. I really, I loved Jesus and, uh, and respected his teachings, but I didn't want to lay my mistakes on him. Neither did I want to be, did I want to promise that I wouldn't make them because I felt making mistakes was very important in, our, in evolving as a human being. And, um, and that has nothing to do with my, um, my view of art. I mean, for me, art as I see it, great art, um, embodies all of the greatest possibilities, um, known and unknown, in the spiritual world, in the intellect, in nature, what we call God or what we call nature, um, what we call spirit, all of these things in, with, it, with, with its in, infinite uh, possibilities come together through the creative impulse to, to do something fine, whether it's Brancusi's Bird in Space or uh, Jackson Pollock's Blue Poles or um, you know, whatever it might be. So um, I, I, uh, I, these things are um, religion and art and religion and um, one's uh, spiritual, internal spiritual quest are not always the same. I am always, I go into churches. I love churches. I love to pray with people. Um, I don't have any particular um, feeling about one religion to the next, except I don't want to be in one. I don't want to be confined to a system of thought, and uh, it's just not for me. I don't preach against religion. I just don't want to have one. Mm. And how was your conversation with the bishop? Did you agree he was, It was awesome because he was not fettered with the idea of religion. We were talking about the same realm. We were talking about, uh, you know, and he wasn't even fettered with the, you know, whether it was called God or nature or the divine or spirit, but we were talking about the same realm, the same realm where we draw from to do our work. I mean, if I were a bishop, I would more or less accept what you now said and, and like it. But I think <laughs> well, some people... Well, he was people... more articulate than I, believe me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He expressed the yeah. same ideas quite beautifully. I, I just think that many people thought and maybe still think that there was a kind of re rebelling, almost blasphemic uh, um, 
dimension to some of your early work and, and, and uh, primarily that line. But of course, it's in, it's about religion. It's not denying well, Jesus. Well, the thing yeah. is, uh, when people say, got very angry when I did horses, they say, you don't believe in Jesus. And I said, I believe in him so much that he's the first word on my first album. Yeah. So, um, but is it true what I read somewhere that at some point you changed it to Jesus died for somebody's sins, why not mine? Yes, I, I, and the reason I, 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 I did that um, uh, in, a, in a time when I was thinking about a lot of things, I just, a couple of things, and sometimes just out of boredom over saying the same thing over and over. Yeah. <laughs> well. <laughs> I won't force you to say more about this. Just one more thing. There was once you fell off a stage. Yes. And that was a horrible situation, probably, or a yes, kind of strange. Yes, it was very bad. Yeah. And you felt that it had some sort of uh, religious significance? No, not religious. I felt that I fell off of the stage. It was an accident because my stage was pure, uh, badly lit, and um, I was given very little room, and. It was, I felt like 14 feet onto concrete and I fractured several vertebrae in my spine, fractured my skull. And in the time that it took to repair, <laughs> um, I, I had a lot of um, thinking to do. I thought a lot about uh, the way that I was, how I was evolving as a person. I was also knee deep in rock and roll, which was never, um, my goal in life was to be, to be a rock and roll star. I wanted to be a poet or writer. And I, I was rethinking everything I did. And I was also looking at the positive side of my accident. You know, when something bad happens to you, it's always a good idea to see how you've evolved because of it. We know how we're damaged. I was damaged physically from my accident, but what, how could I evolve from that accident? And um, so it wasn't, it was a religious experience. It was more of a self-awareness. Um, some people say it's spiritual. It could be simply that I grew as a human being during my recuperation. I was still the same badass kid. I still put my foot through the amplifiers and ripped off all my guitar strings. I didn't turn into a goody-goody overnight, but I did rethink a lot of things. And, um, and I think that's very important. Thinking about your exhibition upstairs or asking questions about it is almost automatically also to ask a little bit about your writing, because the, the, many of the photos appear in, in in the later book that also exists in Swedish, M-Train. Um, I was thinking a little bit about, actually I remember the title of, a, of a, a book I read many years ago that has not much to do with you, but the title is The Anxiety of Influence. How some, uh, it's a dense book on, on poetic influence, by Harold Bloom. Uh, and uh, um, he, he looks into how artists more or less deny the fact that they have, you know, great inspirational sources, or, or they have problems reacting to that. In your case, it seems to be almost the opposite, that you love your influences, and yes. you like I I emphasizing how important they are and how much you love them, and you go to these people's graves 
and you take photographs of things they have touched, and you are aware of their birthdays, and the days they passed away, and the book is full of, of references. And the show upstairs is a beautiful show. Uh, uh, first time it's shown in, a, in an institution. It was shown in a gallery once, uh, but now it's going to travel. And what I like so much up here is the library also. Yes. That all those references are suddenly there in a library with all those books. But why is it that you want to show everything that, that has inspired you? I mean, it's very generous, but it's, I think, rather unusual. I... I uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, the, 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 all of the, the work, it, it helped form me. The books in uh, the library, which is awesome, I mean, when you go into the exhibit, which I hope you will, uh, and it's worth going again and again just to go in the little library that they have formed its own little world with so many of my favorite books in there, books that are referenced in M-Train and books that I suggested that helped form me. And... Um, these books from childhood books, whether it's Peter Pan or, or Dog of Flanders or Girl of the Limberlost to, um, you know, uh, Herman Hesse's Glass Bead Game to Roberto Bolaño's 2666, all of the writers, um, Rimbaud, all of these different writers have influenced me, um, uh, influenced my writing, um, they've, they've helped um, uh, uh, animate my imagination and they've also been uh, comforting. And when I was sick, it, it gave me something to read and something to dream about. And, and the artists that I love, I've learned from. You know, in the book, I'm, uh, a lot of the references in the book are writers. There's Sylvia Plath or... Uh, the Japanese writers, Murakami or Kutagawa, um, uh, Henning Mankell, all of these writers um, help, have helped form me or help expand, not even form, it's more expand my, my mental territory. And I like having them as, they, I think of them as my friends, you know, they're my pals. So uh, uh, I don't come from a big family, so they're my extended greater family. And um, I'm happy to go visit them, go visit their graves and sweep them clean and tell them thank you. And, uh, and also share them with people. I, I know and I've known artists and writers like this who keep all their influences secret because they like to act as if everything came from themselves. But nothing comes just from ourselves. Yeah, I'm a product of my childhood, my siblings, my parents, the things that I've read, the things I've gone through in life, and even encounters with strangers. But what makes it uniquely mine is the way that all of these things coalesce into a work of art, into a story, into a book, into a drawing, a photograph. And I know who I am. I think people who are afraid to say who influenced them maybe don't know who they are, so they don't want anyone else taking up any room. But, but there's plenty of room for all of them. Mm -hmm. they, can, they can come along. No, but it's clearly... Um, you have no secrets in that sense. It's all out there. And it's a great exhibition, I feel, that one can do in an in a, in a institution like this, where we have a huge 
theater downstairs and several libraries in, in, in the building so they could put together that library. That's I've never awesome. seen it done like that before. But maybe a few questions about this pantheon of people. I mean, it's a, almost a labyrinth like, uh, it's an enormous library actually in the end. But reading your book, it's the first, I mean, not the first book, but the, the first autobiographical book, uh, kid, Just Kids. One can definitely find one level of people who are close to the rock and roll world. I mean, it's Jimi Hendrix, um, Jim Morrison, Brian Jones, who died so young from the, the Rolling Stones. Um, and then there are all the poets who are often from a period half a century or a century earlier, I mean, or even, even earlier. I mean, Rambeau, of course, but Blake. And it seems to be poets who have some sort of more or less visionary, ecstatic uh, um, dimension. You know, where, it's, where, where, where normal perception kind of... Well, that's somewhat true. Explodes. And uh, it is somewhat true. You forgot Bob Dylan, though. I mean, I'll place him on another level and we'll be back there. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yeah. but really, it's, it's also... I also loved uh, reading Magray, Mickey Spillane... You know, okay. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not a snob. You know, the no, things no. that I, 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 I it, it's a wide spectrum. But I wanted to, if you don't mind, just step back a bit. When I, in inter, interjecting a lot of these people into my work, mm -hmm. um, especially in the exhibit, they're all so apparent. Um, it's because I'm giving everyone, I feel, each photograph works, hopefully, as a visual element by itself, just as a visual element. But in, in putting all of these together, it's Keats' bed and Virginia Woolf's cane and Robert Graves' hat and Herman Hesse's typewriter and this and that, it's producing also a world. Mm. You can walk in the world and so many of the things in this world belong to artists or they were the beds of artists or the resting place of artists and writers that we love. And you could just sort of, you know, be immersed in this, in this world, which I think is a very nice world. Yeah. Now, so there are graves, there are lots of graveyards in, in your books, but also in the exhibition. Pieces of clothing, a tool or something that someone has touched. Are there a little bit like relics or something? There is, I think, uh, if... I mean, I've been asked about this and forced to analyze this, although I'm not analytical at all. Um, but uh, I think it's a very Catholic view. Mm. I mean, I'm not Catholic or I've never been Catholic, but this, um, their, their concept of the holy relic. Yeah. You have the first class relic that is part of a saint, the bones of a saint. Mm -hmm. And then you have the second class might be the vestment of a saint, uh, like St. Francis's uh, humble horsehair shirt or something. And then third, uh, something that touched the vestment exactly. of a saint. And, um, or a piece of the cross. Yes, and I, I find this, since I was a child, these type of things fascinating. Uh, it, uh, it's not... Uh, you know, to me, it's, it doesn't have anything to do with Christ's teachings, um, but just in, the, in, the, in a sort of a side, uh, a side line of art, I find it all very beautiful. Mm -hmm. I find these relics, I mean, they're so precious and people have invested so much love in 
or in certain religions into icons of the saints. And I, I, I find, um, I understand this. I understand this reverence for, for uh, certain objects because sometimes they're one's father's coffee cup. And it doesn't matter if it's a little cracked or something, but it's your father's and you touch it and you can see him drinking hundreds and hundreds of cups of coffee from it. So it has the same, it could have the same meaning to me as a little, you know, uh, as a little piece of St. Bernadette's uh, cloak. You know, they're, they're, they both uh, had to do, um, you know, they're a part of somebody uh, precious. No, I can totally understand if someone thinks it's a bit of a Catholic atmosphere in yes. the in the, in the It's one thing that Robert Maplethorpe and I had in common mm. and, and talked about. Um, and it's also something that reoccurs in both of our works. It also has to do with the people leaving this world and disappearance and, and death. And um, you write somewhere that death is a, is a disappearing... A disappearing, disappearing act. act. <laughs> Almost as if it would be a kind of artistic, you know, one can die in different ways, but to, to disappear is also to do something. And here are traces and, and, and um, well, relics in a way. Yes. Yeah. There's another aspect to um, why I like, because uh, I've tr traced this object. When I was a little girl, I read all of the books, um, so many books, uh, like Raggedy Ann or Hans Christian Andersen stories, all of the stories of how your toys come alive at night. And of course, I believed this. I didn't really believe in Santa Claus, but I believed that toys came alive at night. As soon as I'd fall asleep, I could imagine like a glittering dust and there'd be P Pinocchio walking about. I mean, this completely, uh, I had no trouble believing this. So all of my objects, they seem... Uh, the objects that are important to me almost seem to be animated a little, mm -hmm. a little bit of life, whether it's a stone or, you know, a, a, a precious book from childhood. They have a little bit of extra life. I can feel that. Also, for those of you who haven't seen the show yet, it's not only um, Hermann Hesse or uh, Rimbaud, or it, it's also people who who were among us, including people I knew, like Christoph Schlingensief, the, yes. the great, great uh, German um, director and, and um, artist. And so it's, it's not just historical stuff. No, it's very no. much... Now, I can promise you that I did not forget Bob Dylan. No, uh, I was, yeah. just, jo I was and, just joking. And, no, no, but because, uh, you know, um, the book, Just Kids, is very interesting for someone like me as an art historian. And this is because it's uh, in 1968, Andy Warhol had his first museum show in Europe, where I now work. And that's exactly the period when your then-boyfriend wanted to be part of that world. Yes. And... Um, uh, no, no, no. He didn't want to be part of the world. He wanted to be friends with Andy. Okay. He wasn't interested in being p part of his stable at all. Okay. Because Robert considered himself on the same level as Andy. And even wanted to do something Andy hadn't done, as yes, you spelled out. Yes, exactly. However, his attraction to Andy yeah. and some of the kind of, maybe not the people, but the whole, that whole uh, world somehow, that at least that's how I, I read yes, the book, is something that you don't totally share. <laughs> There's maybe one 
one very poetic and in that sense positive statement about Andy Warhol when the day he dies, it's snowing where you are and Andy's white hair and other white substances that were very close to him were kind of, he was the white man and, and that's a beautiful line. However, there's, I feel almost like a little bit of skepticism on your part and, um, and I'll just remind you. Um, and I, I find that very interesting. Um, I didn't feel for Warhol the way Robert did. His work reflected a culture I wanted to avoid. I hated the soup and felt little for the can. I preferred, I preferred an artist who transformed his time, not mirrored it. It's one of the best critical statements of Andy Warhol I've ever read. Oh, uh, thank and, you. <laughs> and I'm a huge fan of Andy Warhol, but I totally understand what you're saying. And therefore, I have to say that when I read the book, I knew what was coming, because you aren't alone and you're emphasizing influences. And at some point, I feel that there are two major presences in the book, and then it comes on page 248. You have a concert, it's full action in the club, and you say, yet with all that swirling around me, I could feel another presence as surely as the rabbit senses the hound. He was there. I suddenly understood the nature of the electric air. Bob Dylan had entered the club. And then, that's beyond these inspirations. That's more than anyone in the labyrinth upstairs. Because you say even, it seemed for me a night of initiation where I had to become fully myself in the presence of the one I had modeled myself after. That's not the anxiety of influence, but it's also not just great source of inspiration that's bigger. Well, in terms of performance, um, I, I mean, Bob Dylan had the whole package. When, when I was a young girl, when uh, I first saw Bob Dylan, and I saw him through all of his changes, and I loved everyone, unlike, unlike a lot of people, and everything about him, the way he dressed, the way he walked, his political sensibilities, and also his disdain of having of, of people trying to put him in a box and be just political or giving him political responsibilities, his language, his poetry, um, everything about him I loved. And uh, when I started performing, which was something I hadn't ever dreamed of doing, um, he was the one that I drew from. Even the way I had addressed a little, I mean, like, Tarantula with a white snap tab collar and a black jacket and and you know just sort of adopting some of his arrogance. I mean it all came natural to me. It wasn't uh, like I was just copying somebody. It was things I found in myself that you know were I felt kin to him. But I just wanted to say one other thing mm -hmm. about Andy Warhol. Um, I I didn't you know I wasn't. Uh, his work didn't speak to me through most of my life, but toward the end of his life, he did a beautiful series on The Last Supper. And I thought that this was his greatest work, really, because um, he 
he did transform um, this uh, one of our the great masterpieces of the world. And if you know, people think, oh, they've seen this picture of the Last Supper a million times, but you haven't seen it until you go see it. And when you stand before it, and it's only a ghost of itself because it's almost, it's like probably 70% deteriorated. Just the, 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 um, the simplicity, the power of it, you actually feel in the presence of something humble and divine. And Andy Warhol went to the same place I did. He saw the same thing I did, and he was Catholic and he produced his interpretation of this painting. And I thought they were wonderful. And so I, uh, at the end of his life, I was able to um, appreciate something wholeheartedly that he did and tell him, because I was never um, afraid to tell him what I didn't like. So I thought that I should tell him what I did like. <laughs> But I think it's an interesting tension and, and not at all strange to understand that your poetic, so to say, your, your way of looking at, at art and what you did wasn't immediately compatible with his whole pretty distanced, cold <coughs> emphasis on the fact that uh, media machineries and, and everything is stronger than the individual uh, artist's statement. I just wasn't yeah. interested in all of that. No. I mean, I find it more interesting now to study, mm. you know, but when you were li when I was living within the time period, it just didn't interest me. Mm. I, I was actually deeply in the time period. I was doing plays with some of his people, yeah. um, uh, breaking bread with his people, and and uh, uh, and it was you know they you know he was like the prince of New York City, and um, and so you could not be a New Yorker within the art world and not be conscious of Andy Warhol. But I was more involved. I like the abstract expressionists. I like Rembrandt. I like mm. Caravaggio. I was I, it just, he didn't fit into my aesthetic. Uh, um, it, so mean, a lot of it was just It's aesthetic. a way liberating to hear this. And also because I think Andy Warhol still has a very strong grip on almost everything done in the art. I mean, the strictly more, you know, the museum and gallery world. And it's not, I mean, as I said, I appreciate it. I, I, I can see how influential it's been. But it's interesting to hear that it wasn't, the grip wasn't total. Well, not on me, but, uh, <laughs> but he was, uh, his grip was very strong across the board. Yeah. And, you know, and, I think it still and is a lot actually. of great work was produced mm. under his umbrella. Yeah. You, know, the, you know, you have the Velvet Underground and Nico coming out of, uh, of the factory. Uh, many interesting artists, many uh, um, and characters, and many suicides. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of different things came out of his factory, some dark and some that still illuminate. But um, it was just wasn't a world that I was interested in. Also, it was a world with intense peer pressure. Very, um, people were very uh, um, competitive who got closer to Andy and you went up the ladder toward Andy. And I just wasn't interested in it. And I hated peer pressure in high school and I wasn't gonna get involved in it in New York City, which was supposed to be a liberating place. So, and it was, but these worlds when it's just like any world, whether it's, 
you know, when it's a club or a, re a religion or a political organization or a movement, ultimately for a person like me, they become confining. And that's why I don't join them. Mm. You know, much to some people's dismay, they think in not joining a movement, I'm not for a movement, but I can believe in and I can support a movement without having to join because I like, I like being on my, I'm like a lone wolf. I like to be on my own. Yeah. Beyond tastes or whether he did good images or anything, that sentence of, uh, about artists who transform rather than simply mirror, I won't get back there, but I think it's very interesting. Thank and you. I could see that, uh, that you had other accomplices, other possibilities, and Bob Dylan seems a pretty logical one, or a pretty strong one, as, as a kind of person. Well, also, when I was wrong. really yeah. young, I used to just daydream he was my boyfriend, so he, <laughs> he took care of everything for a while. <laughs> yeah. And the nice thing is, eventually, uh, uh, in 96, after I, I, I had left public life for 16 years to get married and have children, and when my husband died, I was obliged to somewhat step back into public life to make a living to take care of my children. And um, uh, Bob took me on one of his tours and uh, he gave me his lyric book and said that I could choose any song and sing it with him uh, in, in, in his part of the concert. And I sat up all night without sleeping, wondering, you know, should it be something like Highway 61, you know, is it be like really cool or this? I went through every possibility. And then I just decided, you know, that I wanted um, to be more disarming. You know, somehow the girl in me kicked in and I chose this song, Dark Eyes, which is such a beautiful little song with very Blakeian lyrics, uh, very much like his poem Milton, I think. And um, just, a, just sort of a not so well-known song. And I chose that one, which really surprised him. And then when I had to sing it, I put on this, this old dress. Well, it wasn't uh, this, this sort of, it looked like a, a, a um, pioneer person's dress. And I took off my shoes and socks and came on the stage and sang it with him. And he was very surprised. <laughs> but we, it was beautiful. It was one of the most beautiful experiences and we did it around 10 times every night it was like being in heaven the bookstore upstairs <laughs> sorry <laughs> sorry sorry I, from I don't bob dylan to the bookstore <laughs> the bookstore reminded me of the fact that your first real good job was in a bookstore yes and um it seems like you were more or less already as a teenager in some sort of avant-garde spirit that there has, I mean, when you were 16, your mother gave you, it said, the fabulous life of Diego Rivera, uh, a, great, a, a great book. But then when, when one reads, um, you know, what you read and what you refer to already when you're 19 or something, it's the whole full-blown French avant-garde is already in your head. 
And it's not just the kind of um, first thing you read uh, in the... I mean, it's the advanced stuff, so to say. Raymond Roussel or, uh, you know, things that are not only sophisticated, but it's not a given that everyone will be interested in that uh, uh, as a teenager. Many people are, but... Um, I mean, you did go to college, but it's not that you found all of that somehow on your own. And well, I wonder a little bit how such things happen. Well, it's very interesting because it goes back to talking about influences... Um, I learned about Arthur Rimbaud when I was 15 years old because I love Medigliani. And I read a biography about Medigliani, and in it, it said how he would, um, he would uh, recite Rimbaud and that he, um, and he loved Rimbaud. And I didn't know who Rimbaud was, so I went to a library and or I went to a bookstore and I found Rimbaud and I immediately fell in love with him. And then in reading about Rimbaud, I was sent to Nerval or Baudelaire. Mm. And uh, so it was reading sometimes the things that inspired the people that I found, you know, and uh, um, or on the cover of Bob Dylan's Bringing It All Back Home, he's holding a record of La Delenia. Mm. So I wondered, well, Bob likes Latalenia. Yeah. I want to see what who Latalenia is, which brought to me my, a world of Bertolt Breck and and then German literature and it just so uh, that's that's. I mean, there's how, no other way. Otherwise, it's boring. Well, especially classes or something. But you, it happened. I was brought up in a very rural area of southern New Jersey. There were no bookstores, no galleries. Uh, you had to go to the next, to a big city like Philadelphia. There was nothing right there. I had to go to libraries um, mm -hmm. to find books and art books and things like that. And so I had to really, in the early 60s, go, go out and search mm -hmm. um, for things that would appeal to me. Also, I didn't really relate to 50s American culture at all much at all, except for rock and roll. I didn't really, and then eventually ac abstract expressionism, but um, jazz. But, uh, the, the, you know, in terms of literature and poetry, I didn't really relate to much, so I had to seek out what I related to. And I seemed to greatly gravitate toward the French. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, then cinema. You know, suddenly there's Godard and and there's uh, and uh, Godard and, and Bresson and then all of the people surround. I learned about Bergman. I learned about Fellini. I learned about all of these, um, you know, that that wasn't American, that didn't have an American aesthetic or an American point of view, and uh, and I I evolved in that way. And with all of that interest and all of that knowledge already. A bookstore is a pretty place, good place to be. Oh, it was the fantastic. I mean, I worked in factories that were horrendous in South Jersey. I worked as a, a blueberry picker, you know, in a field picking blueberries, and which was terrible because I'm so slow and I would eat too many blueberries. <laughs> so I was really a failure at that. And uh, so, and there wasn't much work where I came from. And I went to New York City and. I got a job in a bookstore just like Audrey Hepburn in Funny Face. 
And in fact, I dressed just like her. I thought, what do you wear when you work in a bookstore? Okay, <laughs> black tights and a little pleated skirt and a little black sweater. And, um, you know, and so I, I loved working in a bookstore because there were infinite kinds of books and I got quite an education working in a bookstore. There, were, there was books on everything, you know, right, right in front of me. And it wasn't like, uh, you know, I was there all day long, six days a week. So I got quite an education. But then uh, very soon came your real university, which you actually re referred to as your university, where you moved in a few years after getting that job, which is Chelsea Hotel, uh, where they were all present. Yes. Yes, it was, uh, well... In the Chelsea Hotel in 1969, Robert and I moved there. And in any given time, you might run into Arthur C. Clarke. Um, you might run into uh, Salvador Dali, um, Allen Ginsberg, Diane Arbus, uh, William Burroughs, um, all kinds of people, writers and poets and filmmakers and, and uh, avant-garde filmmakers and sometimes weird movie stars or like people like Dennis Hopper or uh, and then rock and then one day you'd go downstairs and the Allman Brothers would be down there or because it was all misfits and back then rock and roll stars didn't stay in fancy hotels because nobody wanted them you know Janis Joplin all of these people stayed in my house which was the Chelsea Hotel so um Yes, it was, that's why I said it was my new university, because yeah. I learned all kinds of things from all of these people who gave me advice, who looked at my poetry, who were uh, helpful and uh, scolded me and all kinds of things. Reading your, your, your books and looking at your images, I've been wondering a little bit about, about your temperament. Um, I'm not much of a writer myself, but I once wrote a small uh, essay on the on the melan on melancholia, on melancholy, and um, you know the traditional ancient um, three forces in man uh, have to do with the three, uh, the four temperaments. You can be phlegmatic, sanguine, choleric, or melancholic. And um, before you answer, I can say what I think you are. <laughs> what? Tell me. No, but I... I, I'm, I don't I'm, even know what all that means. Yeah. <laughs> and no one's quite, maybe quite know anymore, but that people really believed in this. And, and you know, and the melancholic uh, uh, spirit has been the most uh, attractive to historians and to poets and people trying to understand what creativity are, is. But I think... Um, the only thing that you don't seem to be at all, in spite of what people might think of uh, your early records or something, is that you don't seem choleric at all. What is choleric? That's, you know, when, you, uh, when you're uh, angry, basically, aggressive. Uh, uh, maybe you have such, but you, if that's the case, you've hidden it pretty well. No, I have yeah. joyful aggression. Okay, so that's a kind of... And then, <laughs> you know, however, you talk a little bit about an, an incurable lethargy that you're kind of a kind of passiveness that where you don't know if you can... Uh, and, and so that's pretty close to being a phlegmatic. Uh, you are, I don't know how to pronounce it in English, sanguine. I mean, you're a joyful person with all this, all this, all the, these books are full of joy. So there's no way that there's not that also. 
But I think you are a kind of very positive, rom uh, melancholic person. Yes, yeah. That's, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, makes yeah. perfect <laughs> sense. Uh, and, 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 and melancholia is famous as a temperament because, uh, or famous, but it's been written so much about, because it seems to have this dualism built to it. There is a kind of, I want to be alone, introverted, a little bit slow, dark, sometimes a little bit depressive state. But then there are bursts of incredible... Uh, joy and creativity, and uh, so I think simply you're a full-blown melancholic. Well, you know that's very funny, because uh, the book that I chose to, um, I always choose a book when I'm taking a trip, whether I read it or not, and um, a friend gave me a gift of a book called The History of Melancholy. It's called Melancholy, and it's written by a Hungarian writer, Laszlo something. I'm so sorry mm -hmm. that, uh, because I haven't read it yet and I can't see his whole name, mm -hmm. but it's called Melancholy. It's in my bag, you know. Well, so, so then. <laughs> um, but uh, that's very funny because he gave me six or seven books and um, he's uh, the head of publishing at Yale and all new books that he published. And I looked through them. Oh, this is a wonderful book on Eva Hesse and a new Patrick Modiano book. And then this book called Melancholy, and I thought... We'll, we'll see I'm, what you think. I'm taking yeah. that one. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. but I think that the, when we think of melancholy in its highest form, uh, it, it's, it, you can attribute it to people also who have very... Um, uh, their, their imaginative or visionary powers are very strong. And sometimes the melancholy might be because you, they can't always me, uh, completely... Um, well, you're always in this schism where you have this other world that's calling to you, and yet you're living in the real world. So you're never quite either place. So not being able to go completely into that world, because that might mean death, and then you're sitting in this world and you can't completely um, join in with the festivities around you, you're mm. always sort of in this strange um, uh, other world. And I think uh, that is part of the, the world of the, the melancholy. And it's mathematicians have this, and scientists, great thinkers, mm. and um, I'm not saying I'm any of those, but, uh, but I understand this realm. And I think what makes me maybe the more optimistic side of melancholy is because I had a very um, difficult childhood in terms of illness. I was born with bronchial pneumonia. My father saved my life. Then I had tuberculosis. Um, I, I, I went through many you know, scarlet fever and all of the plethora of childhood illnesses. I spent a lot of my years till I was 16 ill and uh, reading books and ill. And as I got older, you know, I still have certain things, um, chronic cough or this or that, but I'm much healthier approaching 70 than I was as a child. And I think really just I'm so happy to be alive because I remember so many times laying there like this, you know, a fever and hearing my mother crying and the doctor saying, I don't think she's going to make it. And I'm thinking, <laughs> fuck him. I'm going to like... <laughs> you know. 
I'll, I'll, I'll be fine. Just give me like a month of suffering and I'll be fine. But um, I think it's just, I appreciate being alive. I've, I have so many friends who have died who didn't make it, who died of illness or, or however they, they died. But, you know, I, I feel so lucky to be here. And uh, so I can only let melancholy take me so far. M train, is M for melancholy? Well, <laughs> I didn't think of that, really. Um, not is initially. there M train? I mean, I know the D train and the F train, and I know the, New no, York the a little M train bit. M train is train my where? train. Mind. It's, so it's not it's memory, my, it's mind, my, my mind, mind yeah. mental. You know, it's, I, 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 I spent so much time working on Just Kids, the chronology, a responsibility to New York City, to Robert, to the time period, to anybody that was in the book, whether I liked them or not, to really um, portray everyone fairly and as accurately as possible. And it was so much responsibility. And I just wanted to write an irresponsible book that uh, you know, had no destination, no plot, no chronology, just whatever came to my mind. And uh, it was uh, challenging, but a joy to write. I was wondering this morning suddenly, what does M actually stand for? And I thought, uh, I mean, I actually Googled what, where the M train goes. <laughs> but, well, but no, it I, has nothing to do with, I didn't even I know that hoping, New York had an M train no, maybe because I've never taken I think, it. Well, I think there's, I was hoping it, was, it would go to Rockaway, no. uh, where you have a house. No, it's an A train. What kind of a name is that, by the way, Rockaway? It's just what it just it's named. I, I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I did want to say that OM, I, I only meant it to be mind, but as I was writing, so many of the things that I wrote about, Michigan, which I never thought to write about, um, uh, Murakami, Mankell. Mankell. You all spell of out the M as in Mankell mystery, at some point. Yeah. Uh, you know, whether it's. Uh, um, mystery or mayhem or, as you said, melancholy. And actually, melancholy is on one of the, like, the word, I talk about melancholy on, like, the fourth page. And the funniest thing is uh, someone asked me about that, using it to prove that I was melancholy, and I said, well, actually, in the book, I said that I'm, well, you have it. I have it somewhere. It says, <laughs> I, of course, noticed. It says I had a... A sort of a degree of melancholy, a degree of malaise mm -hmm. that I turned in my hand, mm -hmm. melancholy, like a small planet, something like that, impossibly blue. And I'll tell you, maybe you can my, find I it. It's it. really in the this. Yeah, I know. It's but right. I, I can show you, even without my glasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have. Because I, I found the lethar lethargy immediately, but I then I know. No, you the, can find it. You, I can't. You have read melancholy it. in your hand, and you roll it. I can't read it because I don't have the, my glasses. Page, I'll read it. You can read it. Yeah. You read very nicely. <laughs> Sorry. I'm like a blind by like like <laughs> Okay, it's somewhere in this last it might be the last sentence. Yes. Yes, yes. I it says Without noticing I slip into a light yet lingering malaise, not a depression, more like a fascination for melancholia which I turn in my hand as if it were a small planet, steeked in shadow, impossibly blue. 
So I wanted to say that <laughs> what I did there was I referenced one of my favorite modern movies called Melancholia. And, uh, and it's um, a Lars... Lars Trier. Yes, Lars von Trier. Yeah. It's his movie, which I've seen like six times. I love this movie. And it's a blue planet, a small blue planet called Melancholia that collides with Earth and we end our existence. So I was referencing, it was a little salute to yeah. this, uh, um, this movie. Um, and I think there so. are many other references in it that aren't spelled out, but you know, I also thought M would be basically for memory or... Memory uh, is and, it, absolutely you know, memory, Greek, yes. Mnemosyne, like yeah. the, yeah, but... Um, and so which it, a, a word that I love, the memosyne. Memosyne, yeah, yeah, which, which is the goddess of memory. Yes. Yeah. And yes, in fact, yes, she, she would be uh, the queen of this book because I wanted to write in present tense, but found that what I do in the present is often sit and think about the past. So I, 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 that's one thing I said in the book that I like is I, live, I think we live in the trinity of memory because we're, we're dreaming of the future and existing in the present while also impressions of the past keep haunting us all simultaneously so uh it's it's pretty much where the book is it's a little piece of the trinity of memory these books came out a few years ago and reached a totally new audience you were so used to having a big audience as a musician but between this period and, and the period that you write about primarily, I mean, which is a long period in Just Kids, um, there was also a kind of break. I shouldn't call it a break because raising a family is not a break and doing other things, but a break from doing art in front of big audiences. Public, the public, public. eye. Yeah. It was 16, 16, 16 years. years, yes. And, I mean, do you think you would have been able to do this without that no. period? No, no because I think... Uh, one thing that I came, one realization I came in performing rock and roll, which was fantastic. Um, and in 78, I was more in the rock and roll star realm because I was getting successful. And, um, and it was exciting and I was young, but I was also noticing that I wasn't evolving as an artist. I wasn't growing, the, whether from repetition also, I was, you know, I came from a poor family. I never had money. I had never been in a limousine. I had never been in a fancy hotel. And I was living in a manner I wasn't used to living. And also I found myself starting to be demanding, arrogant, um, having so much stress and so much uh, constant demands on me. And uh, because I usually have a fairly even temperament, getting, you know, agitated all the time. And uh, I didn't think I was growing. I, I wasn't as politically aware as I should. My poetry wasn't growing. And um, so it was a difficult decision to leave everything behind. But it was a decision that had to be made. Um, I couldn't uh, give myself... Um, give all of my time uh, to um, my love and to our future children. 
and also the development of myself as an artist while constantly running around the road, running on the road, <laughs> um, living an exciting life. Yeah. Um, and so it was a good, it was difficult at first, and I can't say that I did it frivolously. I had to really think about it, but it was the best thing that I could do because I did grow as a human being. I spent 16 years with somebody I really loved who unfortunately had a short lifeline. I had two children that I cherish. And also, because my time was limited, uh, because being a mother is very encompassing, I had to develop new disciplines as a human being, as an artist. And so I, I developed this thing that I'd wake up at five in the morning till eight when everyone was sleeping, my husband, the children, the baby, and I wrote. And I made myself do that. And again, that was hard because I was very undisciplined. And in those 16 years, I developed a very strong writer's discipline. And even though I didn't publish in those 16 years, I wrote every day, I grew every day, and I could have not written these books without all of that um, discipline and labor. So um, it was a... It was a very uh, strong creative period for me, even though I didn't put, at, put out anything publicly. A few things that I wondered about having to do with the show. I mean, maybe to begin with, the, 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 the title of the show, Upstairs, is 18 Stations. And I was wondering a little bit about Stations. I mean, um, now we're back to some sort of religious thing, <laughs> whether it's the stations of the cross, or, or is it simply the stations of the subway taking you out to Rockaway, or is it stations in your life, but why then 18? It seems they are much more. Uh, um, well, what, what is the title about? That, well, it's because simply uh, there are 18, I'm sorry, in M-Train, I, I didn't want to call the, them chapters, uh, because the book is broken down in like 18 sections. But I didn't like the idea of calling them chapters no. because that to me ha gives a sense of a story or a narrative. So I thought, what, what will I call them? And then I thought, okay, it's a train. I, I would call them uh, because the train stations, there's train stations all over. So I, it was a good play on words. But you came, and of course there's always the religious resonance, but uh, I can't uh, possibly um, uh, um, uh, compare the 18, the 14 stations, is it 14, 12 or 14, stations of the suffering of Christ to my little 18 stations. Um, it was more, as you said, there are more d different stations in one's life. And uh, you articulated that very nicely. There are yeah. stations in the book. But then maybe just to stay with one or two of the stations upstairs. If I mean, maybe they're also grouped in such a way that they're not just every picture is a station. But for instance, um, one thing I'd never seen before, uh, I mean, before I saw it in your context, is the, is the typewriter of Hermann Hesse. And um, yesterday at some point, 
when I asked you for your, for your email address, and I heard it had a mathematician's name in it. I will not mention the email address. <laughs> uh, don't, don't worry. You said a few a few ideas about, um, or some. You said something about mathematics that you're not really. Well, you hinted at it a second ago also that you're not really good at that or into mathematics, but you can share a certain enthusiasm for a mathematician's process. process and, oh, I... and I was thinking that Hesse is someone who has uh, somehow, it's a long time ago that I've read Hermann Hesse, and he writ he's written many kinds of books, but uh, there's the, the glass bed game, which is some sort of fantastic synthesis of mathematics and some sort of rather rigorous form of mysticism and art, and Music. one doesn't even know what it is in the end. Uh, well, the thing is, you just mentioned the book, I think, of if I had to choose one book other than childhood reading that has made, had the most profoundest influence on me, I would say The Glass Bead Game, because The Glass Bead Game um, opened uh, to me the the way that what the glass bead game is, it's impossible for me to explain, except um, it's a form of, uh, let's see, it's a formatted. Um, I wish I could help you, but I can't remember well, what it is. Well, you could say it's <laughs> a diagram of something very concrete um, that would have stations, like for instance, the perfect architectural drawing of a uh, Chinese house that has specific, um, you know, you do, uh, it's like an architectural drawing or it could be any, it could be, a, it could be a Cabousier house or anything. It has, it has certain points that make this house um, concrete, makes it stable, makes it uniform. And so then you think of each of these points also as a drop of music or as a meditation point. And in any event, it's a very beautiful, fanciful book that has the most, um, to me, the, 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 the most beautiful description of how the mind works. And I didn't explain it very well. You'd have to read it, and probably many of you have. But when I read it as a young girl, it was almost, it's, it, it was like a relief. It's like the mind is a mandala, you know, and, and it's very ordered, yet it's expansive. And um, I don't remember what the question is now, but... I, mean, um, I, I don't know if there was a question. But I, just, I will tell there you... There <laughs> is th that photo of Hermann Hesse's typewriter, which well, is astonishing in itself. I was so grateful for this book and uh, then I learned about the Hermann Hesse Foundation in Lugana, and they, they need to raise money all of the time because they don't have any particular money of their own, but they, to take care of a little museum that has his spectacles and his belongings and some of his manuscripts, and also to keep his name alive and his work alive. So I went there and I did a, a bed, little benefit concert and um, in exchange, they allowed me to photograph his things. Well, I couldn't get a good shot of most of them because they were in glass cases, but his typewriter is very big, a big old German typewriter called a Schmidt. <laughs> Beautiful typewriter. 
And I looked at this typewriter and, and I wanted to know what he did. It was the last typewriter of his life. And he typed the glass bead game on this typewriter. So if you want to talk about a holy relic. Um, <laughs> so they left me in a room by myself with it. And it was on a table. Not a good shot. And then the light was coming through this low window. And I got this idea that I wanted to put it right in the light so that the keys, you couldn't see the letters anymore. They would just look like strings of beads. And um, so nobody was around. Don't tell. Uh, <laughs> so I lifted this thing up. And I, put, I said, I'm sorry, Herman. And I put it <laughs> on the floor in the light. And I was so scared somebody would come in. I took a breath, boom, got my shot, put it back. I didn't even look at it. I was too afraid to look at it. So after I said goodbye, and you have to go way up a hill, and I had to go way down the hill. And as we were going down the hill, I peeled it. Got just what I wanted. So, and my argument is when people say, why do you take these pictures? And why are you showing pictures of all these things? Because not many people are going to have the time or even the inclination to go uh, to Lugana to see this typewriter. So I have taken it and I can give it to you. You and won't uh, miss it. It's a very <laughs> strong image. <laughs> On the cover of M-Train, one sees you in a cafe called Cafe Ino. Mm -hmm. And it appears again on the cover of this little publication. And this is a theme in your life, it seems, almost as big as literature, music, art, or religion, namely coffee. It's a thread that runs through many of your, I mean, in every chapter there's some mention of it. And, and um, <coughs> now that you're here, coughing, but, but still rather healthy, um, it seems that it's been the only <coughs> important drug in your life. Yes, it's my vice of choice, yes. I can tell you exactly my genesis with coffee, if you yeah. want. My father and mother had morning coffee their whole life, and I would watch my parents drink coffee and you know, my mother would make it on the stove and percolate and pour it. And the, the satisfaction, the way they drank that coffee, it seemed like they were in heaven. And um, I couldn't wait till I could drink coffee. <laughs> and uh, I didn't even know when I finally did whether I liked it or not, but it linked me with this moment of my mother and father's. And... Um, and so I've always loved coffee. But simultaneously with that, I have always, the idea of a cafe, where I came from, there were no cafes. They didn't have cafes in South Jersey. They had a couple pizzerias, but no cafe. And I saw my first cafe in the movie, um, a Cocteau movie, Orpheus, and it starts out at the Café des Poets. Of course, the Café of Poets. <laughs> Juliet Greco was in a striped boat neck shirt, and they were playing bongos and reading poetry, <laughs> and, you know, and the, the, the main poet was drunk, and, you know, it was just 
I thought, this is the life for me, you know? Um, and so I've always been, I've always had a very romantic notion toward uh, cafes and coffee. And it's one that I've never let go of. It's, it's part of, you know, who I am. And, uh, you know, I've never, never, uh, you know, drugs I find interesting intellectually and I've tried a few of them. I smoked pot for a little while in my life. And, uh, but coffee really has been my significant and enduring uh, vice. Thank you. Now, I, I didn't even need to ask all those things. I mean, I, I hinted at it because I felt you've been not close, you've been in ecstasy when it comes to your references and your life as an artist and all the poets you reference. And I presumed you have been pretty close to drugs, but coffee has been your. Well, main when you drug. have been as unhealthy as I was as a kid, it was, would never be possible for me to indulge in drugs. I have sometimes the worst drug reputation. You would think I led a, the most exciting life of degradation. And uh, if I took even this much of the drugs people say I did, I would have been dead years ago. But uh, I think that drugs are precious. And I think that I've always had a romantic view of drugs that they for, for illumination or for the American Indians in the sweat lodge. It was for uh, seeing something of the future or for, um, for mental evolution. Uh, I've never been interested in them recreationally, not even pot. You know, I smoked pot and played clarinet and wrote poetry and uh, maybe bad poetry, but I wrote it anyway. But uh, my health does not allow me to um, indulge in drugs. And also I have had, seen beautiful people that I'd loved and admired, destroyed by drugs and alcohol. And it's, I don't, people say, oh, you romanticize all these people that died. Oh no, I don't romanticize their death, nor their drugs, their work. That's what I love about Jim Morrison. That's what I loved, well, Jimi Hendrix, he was also really cute. But um, <laughs> I don't admire people because they took drugs and died. I admire people because they gave us good work that endures and continues to inspire us, influence us, and help us get through the day. That's kind of almost the perfect ending, but... But not quite. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, yeah. There's a but. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just thought yesterday, because I was also amazed by the fact that the audience was so young at your show. And people come. No, no, come, stay with, stay yeah. with you. Because it's you. No, I was just wondering, um, why do you think so many younger people, I can understand them, but why is the audience, I mean, there are people in your, uh, of your age, of my age, but also people of my daughter's age, and they're here and they love what you're doing or they're inspired by it. That's maybe not so easy for you to say why, but I'm, I'm, I well, wonder. Uh, and the second question, which is kind of the same, uh, uh, or rather, you've been active now 
more or less, or at least it's now actually almost half a century that more, you've been more than in, the, that, yes. in, in the public, you're doing art in, in, in front of audiences. And for younger people who want to be, now I quote Gilbert and George, who want to be with art, whatever that means, to be in art, with art, uh, what do you, would you what's the advice? Art seems to have found you, but you found art also. What, what, what is your advice? Well, first, I'm, I'm sorry that you have to wait. We're almost done. <laughs> but no, I think this is a good, a good way to end is with uh, our young people because our, our young, uh, the younger generations are the hope of the world. So they are the, this is the perfect place to uh, end our conversation, which I've enjoyed very much. Um, I, I can't say why younger generations come um, give me support and... Uh, and, and, and look at my work. Some of it might because they, they like just kids. I really don't know and it's not mine to say, but I can say how I feel about it. And that's privileged, grateful, really happy, amazed. Because for one thing, I have been at concerts, I've done concerts, 90 degrees, lights on me, maybe I'm tired, maybe it's very humid. Um, maybe I don't feel well, I'm losing my energy, and I just feel like I don't, can't quite finish, and all I have to do is appeal. And especially young people, you appeal to them for energy, they give of it completely selflessly. And with that energy that they give me, I've been able to finish concerts and then give it back to them. And I'm, when, when yesterday at the opening, there were so many young people. Um, they came from Poland, they came from Finland, they came from Chile, they, they came from all over Sweden. And I, I just feel, you know, that's so humbled by that, that they would be interested in the work that I do. And, um, and what I would want for them is to, you know, hopefully be interested, but then push me aside and do their own work. And really, hopefully, if I can give them anything, just offer them a little kernel of, um, of enthusiasm for themselves, uh, for their own work. And for young artists, I always say the same thing. You have to be ready if you want to really be an artist, really be a musician, really be a scientist, really be a baker, really be a mother. You have to be ready to sacrifice and you have to be ready to work hard. And you have to be ready to make as your goal, not necessarily fame and fortune, but to do something fine. And um, I can say that for my own life, whether I've done anything fine yet, the pursuit of that has been the most beautiful of all pursuits. So thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.